Hey, welcome to the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Tuesday, June 30, 2020. It's the last day of June. On today's episode, we have Hershey Dwoskin, who's going to be speaking about in the headlines for the full hour. Hershey, welcome. Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you all for joining in. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you all again. Um, I've chosen a topic today to get away from COVID, something quite specific and quite of, of great interest to everyone here. And that is uh, the idea that as of tomorrow, um, Israel has been permitted by the United States in theory to annex territories which were captured in 1967. So I thought that uh, this could be an interesting subject. And uh, before I talk about this particular annexation, I just would like to mention what annexation is and where it stands in uh, recent modern history. And annexation means simply taking over pieces of territory uh, that don't belong to you, that belong to someone else. After the Second World War, there have been very few cases of annexation in uh, the world because um, the world sort of set down rules and regulations and uh, things stayed pretty, uh, for 50 years, the, the, um, the world was quite stable in that there were relatively few international conflicts. Um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the emergence of a new Russia, this began to change. And in fact, Russia took over or annexed pieces of territory belonging to other countries, specifically Georgia and the Ukraine, which we know about, Crimea, and made it belong to them. Now, the world as a whole and the United Nations in particular does not like the idea of annexations. They don't like one country taking over territory from another country because obviously this opens up a can of worms and if one uh, party can do it, this idea could spread to the whole world where stronger neighbors take over territory from weaker neighbors. Uh, Morocco, for example, took over a piece of Africa called Western Sahara. And in the other cases that I mentioned, the Russian annexations, the United Nations and the rest of the world outside very friendly countries don't recognize it. And the reason is quite simple, because nobody wants to start uh, a fourth world war. The case with Israel is more complicated. Um, Israel did capture the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and the Golan Heights as a result of the 1967 war. Israel, with the exception of Jerusalem, did not annex any of this territory. It sort of held it um, uh, pending negotiations, which never uh, succeeded. Gradually, over the years, Israel settled some of those territories. They, people came in to live there, either for nationalistic reasons, or for religious reasons, or for economic reasons, or for strategic reasons. And today, in the West Bank, the area captured by Israel in 1967, there are a half a million Israeli Jews living there alongside somewhere around 2.8 million Arab Palestinians. 
The reason that this particular idea of annexation is more complicated is that the territory that was taken over was taken over from Jordan, but Jordan doesn't want it back. So in essence, Israel is now uh, uh, administering a piece of territory that belongs theoretically to nobody. Um, there is no official state of Palestine yet. Uh, Jordan has said it doesn't belong to us. So it's a kind of a void. Well, who does it belong to? Basically, this is uh, up for negotiation. Similarly, in the Gaza Strip, uh, the Gaza Strip, which was uh, occupied by Egypt at the end of the 1948 war, was never annexed by Egypt. It was just held and administered by Egypt until 1967. Israel occupied that territory from 1967 up till uh, 2005. And then Israel withdrew from it because of uh, security and other considerations. Uh, and now it is run by the Palestinian Hamas movement, but it has no uh, legal international status. So it's again, a kind of piece of territory without real, um, without real uh, independence. So the question is, well, uh, if, if Israel took this territory over in 1967, why is it that today, so many years later, Israel is considering to annex the territory. And the explanation simply is that this has to do with America, with the United States. Um, the whole world up until now wanted the Palestinians and Israelis to come to some sort of agreement, whatever it may be. And this agreement would, in theory, uh, allow for some changes in borders some annexation by Israel of areas which are thickly settled by Jewish um, uh, inhabitants. And at the same time to allow for the um, creation of a Palestinian state with a capital somewhere in or around Jerusalem and with the possibility of exchanging territory, in other words, the Palestinian taking over some Israeli territory and Israel taking over some Palestinian territory and um, thus coming to the creation of a Palestinian state. Um, just excuse me one second, I want to close my window. The lawnmowers are working, the gardeners are working. Um, I'm going to show you a map. Let's see how this looks. I don't know, can we see it? Yes, I think we can. So this is a map of the West Bank. And these areas here, make lines. The areas here with the lines are areas which Israel wants to take over or annex. These areas amount to about 30% of the territory, but importantly, they include the whole bank of the Jordan River so as to act as a security, 
a security boundary between Jordan on this side and Israel on this side. They include the important settlements that Israel has made, most interestingly and importantly, in and around Jerusalem. All this area over here. So if you notice then, by doing this, the northern part of the West Bank and the southern part of the West Bank would not be really contiguous. There would be a kind of a bridge of Israel in the middle over here. Um, and uh, it also includes this large piece of territory over here, which um, was settled after 1967, the first area settled after 1967, and includes all other more, I, I did it simply, but there would be all other sorts of enclaves and ins and outs all around uh, Hebron and um, all around some other areas in the northern part of it sort of looks a little bit like Swiss cheese if you wanted to, um, if you wanted to look so carefully. Now, this annexation idea is uh, opposed by the vast majority of Palestinians who said, "Look, we don't want to give out away any more territory than we already have given away." Uh, on the one hand. But on the other hand, it's opposed by two sectors in the Jewish population of Israel. It's opposed by those on the left who don't, who want a realistic solution to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. It's opposed by uh, the Israeli Arab population who similarly, for the same reason, oppose it. It's also opposed by some very right-wing Israeli uh, settlers and right-wing Israeli politicians who say, we want everything. We want all of the West Bank. We don't want the Palestinians to ever have a Palestinian state of their own. And um, it's also opposed by pretty well uh, the rest of the um, outside world, meaning the European Union, Russia, um, most moderate countries in the world who want there to be a permanent solution between the two sides and who hope for the emergence of a Palestinian state. Now, the United States itself has um, conditioned or has allowed Israel to proceed with this annexation, and they uh, also want the emergence of a Palestinian state. However, this Palestinian state is something which is more of an idea than a reality because the Palestinian state is conditioned upon its being demilitarized, it's conditioned upon the acceptance by this new state of all of Israel's demands, uh, it's conditioned on the, um, the uh, uh, existence of so-called, uh, let's call it peaceful relations between the two sides for an undetermined period, maybe five years, and only then would a Palestinian state be allowed to emerge. In other words, it's conditioned on the good behavior of the Palestinians in the eyes of Israel and the eyes of the United States. It's also conditioned on the, um, uh, the uh, cessation of payments of uh, Palestinian government to um, uh, uh, per perpetrators of violence against Israel. 
And there are many other conditions there which make it very hard, not only for the Palestinian government to accept it, but for the Palestinian people themselves to accept it. Uh, there are some interesting aspects to this, however, one of which of the American plan. One of which is, if you look at this map over here, this is the Gaza Strip over here. And you see this dotted line, this is supposed to be a road or tunnel, which would link Gaza on this side to the rest of the Palestinian state in this area over here. Uh, this particular uh, idea is one which would sort of create some sort of viable, so-called viable Palestinian state. Another, another part of this idea is you see these couple of bumps down over here. These would be territories which currently belong to Israel pre-1948, which would be added to the Gaza Strip to make a bigger territory, sort of to spread the people out. Uh, and yet Israel would still control the boundary between itself over here and Egypt over here. So somehow these two little bumps would be added into the Gaza Strip and this little line over here would be a tunnel or a road which would go to the, uh, if it's a road, there would be no exits. And if it's a tunnel, it would be a tunnel. And this would link up the Gaza Strip to the rest of the Palestinian state. So this is the American plan, um, which was uh, worked out between two of the three sides meaning the United States and Israel, but without the Palestinians. So this so-called plan for the Palestinian state was not agreed to or even negotiated with the Palestinians. So it, it tells you then how, in a way, one-sided this idea is and was, and um, why, why it is being presented now is has a lot to do with America and less to do with Israel. So Donald Trump um, is one whose um, uh, bedrock area of support uh, in the United States comes from evangelical Christians. And evangelical Christians are his strongest supporters and also the strongest backers of the Netanyahu government in Israel. So in some sense, this, this plan is a reward to the evangelicals for their past support, and it's a um, request for their support in the next election. So in other words, you might say it has almost nothing to do with the Israel or the Palestinians per se. This uh, Trump government is the first one who um, moved the United States uh, Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Uh, it recognizes Israel's takeover of the uh, eastern part of Jerusalem, which belonged to, the, to Jordan prior to 1967. And it's incorporation of those uh, Palestinians living in Jerusalem to be Israeli residents. Um, it has also acted in other ways which align with, these, with Israel's agenda uh, in the Middle East, namely to isolate and to uh, boycott Iran, uh, to withdraw from the, from the um, 
the agreement, uh, the nuclear uh, development agreement, which the rest of the world had with Iran, in which Iran was um, uh, rewarded financially for stopping its nuclear program. And, the United and this was opposed by Israel and opposed by the United States, and the United States pulled out of this program. Uh, and so the United States took many steps on the international front to help the Netanyahu government. And I would say that this uh, uh, permission of annexation is one of the uh, most important steps that it's taken in this, in this um, uh, plan. The United States did not discuss this plan with um, its NATO allies, its European allies, its uh, allies in the Far East, or even its allies in the Arab world. Uh, it informed the allies of the Arab world that this is what it was doing. Those allies include Saudi Arabia, Jordan, uh, the, United, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Egypt, uh, etc. None, none of those countries said, oh, Mr. Trump, this is a fantastic idea. It will bring peace in the Middle East. Uh, the most that they did was just be quiet about it. Uh, and not publicly oppose it. Um, other countries, however, did publicly oppose it and uh, said that the only way peace can come in this area is in negotiations between the Palestinians themselves and the Israelis. Of course, there were negotiations between the Palestinians and the Israelis, which culminated in the Oslo Accords uh, in, the, in the 1990s, um, between Rabin and Arafat. And those accords allowed for the creation of a Palestinian state. Some very minor border adjustments where Israel would take over some of the smaller areas it had settled. Uh, the city of Jerusalem would have been part of Israel, but with some international oversight and standing. And um, uh, the Palestinian state would be demilitarized, uh, but there would be the, the addition of international forces like UN forces to come in to um, supervise that uh, there would be no hostile engagements between the rest of the Arab world and Israel via the new Palestinian state. Now this deal, it was the best deal that the Palestinians could have possibly expected. And at the last minute, Mr. Arafat changed his mind and said, I can't sign it. Um, you know, the, the late Abba Iban came up with a, a phrase saying that uh, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And this was really, in hindsight, a terrific opportunity, which today, uh, would be accepted by any um, moderate uh, and responsible Palestinian leader. However, however, Mr. Arafat um, felt it was not possible to accept, not on pra for practical reasons, but for theoretical reasons. And that theoretical reason is that there is a great body of Palestinians who don't recognize that Israel as a Jewish state should exist at all. And once you put your thumbprint and signature on any kind of an agreement, it means that 
the recognition of Israel is there permanently. Remember that any Palestinian politician does not only have the interests of Palestinians living in Palestine to worry about, but the interests of Palestinians living all around the world and especially in refugee camps in the Middle East. Uh, people whose families are holding keys to properties that they lost in 1948. And by recognizing any sort of Israel, you are saying to all these millions of refugees that your status as refugees is now uh, obsolete, that you will never go back to your homes, you'll never regain your uh, properties, even though they know that this is the case, but the hope was always somehow held out to them. And so Arafat could not step away uh, from these people, and therefore he turned his back at the last minute and missed uh, the opportunity so-called of a lifetime. Uh, today, the uh, Palestine on offer to the uh, Palestinian government is much smaller, weaker, uh, and a much worse offer than was the one given in 1994. Um, in today's news, I was reading that the Palestinians were saying now that for the first time in six years, they're willing to so-called negotiate and that they're willing to even accept some uh, minor border changes so long as the basis of the 1994 agreement is held. And the chances of that happening uh, or Israel agreeing to it are, are zero because the US itself is supp supporting Israel in its much greater annexation uh, idea than, um, than the, the old agreement. But a deal is not done. And uh, the new Israeli government itself is not united on doing this annexation. Uh, the new Israeli government is composed of two main parties, the um, Likud party and the half of the blue and white party led by Mr. Gantz, was the alternate prime minister. Mr. Gantz is a much more, we'll call it center of the road moderate than Netanyahu is. His uh, desire to annex territories is nothing compared to Netanyahu's. Um, he says that annexation should only be done with the agreement of the uh, Palestinians themselves, with the Arab states around Israel, with the European Union and with the United Nations. In other words, he's saying, this is a dream for tomorrow and not for today. Um, and uh, therefore, uh, he's not in favor of it. Mr. Netanyahu says, well, you don't have to be in favor of it because I'm the boss. And so in a certain way, um, this deadlock will result in the July 1st date which was proposed by Israel to be pushed back into the who knows when part. Um, there have been a lot of people who have been comparing Netanyahu to Donald Trump. And some people say that uh, Donald Trump is, that Netanyahu is an Israeli Donald Trump. And some people would say that Donald Trump is the American Netanyahu. These comparisons are, in my opinion, um, extremely invalid. Uh, they are far too generous to Donald Trump uh, because Netanyahu 
while um, uh, sharing some of Trump's methodology is nothing like Donald Trump as a politician or as a person. So, uh, you know, while we're on that subject, let's compare and contrast the two politicians. Um, <clears throat> Mr. Netanyahu is a politician of tremendous experience. He was elected in the 1990s. He was in the cabinet in the 1990s. He supervised Israel's emergence from a uh, kind of a state uh, dominated an economic system to a private economic system. He, uh, he um, supervised a period in Israel's economy of changing from tremendous inflation and no growth to the opposite. So Israel's emergence from a kind of a middling sort of socialistic type country with a, a low standard of living for everybody, uh, uh, during Netanyahu's time changed to one of a uh, much wealthier country, albeit with much bigger social divisions. So in other words, uh, the emergence of a wealthy class in Israel was because of Netanyahu's sort of free enterprise ideas and his encouragement of the growth of business in the country. Um, Mr. Netanyahu has been is the longest serving prime minister in Israel. He beat Ben-Gurion's record uh, recently. Um, he is educated. He is experienced. He speaks perfect uh, English. He was educated in part in the United States. Um, he's won several elections and he served in the military. His own brother, of course, was a hero of the uh, Entebbe raid to uh, rescue the hostages uh, of the El Al plane, and his brother, unfortunately, was killed in that rescue. Um, compare that to Donald Trump. Barely educated, no government experience, speaks no languages, managed to win an election kind of uh, with fewer votes than his opposition. Um, has uh, never had any experience running any uh, level of government from municipal to state to federal. So to compare the two of them in that way is a great disservice to, to Mr. Netanyahu. However, however, they both share a lot of things in common. They're both in a, some sense very skilled politicians and Mr. Netanyahu especially is a skilled politician, having managed to um, keep the prime ministership of Israel uh, despite um, three elections in a row which did not really hand him power on a silver platter. Uh, he believes in dividing the population of setting one part of the country against another. He believes in calling his opponents traitors uh, for not agreeing with him. He's anti-press. He doesn't believe that the freedom of the press is an important um, attribute of a country when it criticizes him. Uh, he has racist tendencies and has turned the people of Israel against its own Arab population, calling them uh, a, uh, calling them traitors and calling them uh, 
a third, uh, fifth column in the country. Um, he has tried to suppress the vote of people who are against him, specifically Arab population, by putting election monitors inside the polling stations with cameras. Um, and he's a criminal. He's up on charges of three completely separate charges of um, breaking the law by bribery, by receiving gifts, etc. Uh, Donald Trump has not yet been charged with anything, but it wouldn't surprise me that uh, once he's out of office that all the bushes start getting uh, shaken and some criminal charges could be brought against him for who knows what. So they share certain things in common and they, um, they uh, uh, are, are differing in the sense that Mr. Netanyahu is a real experienced, educated politician, and uh, Donald Trump isn't any of those things. Um, now, um, to give some a bit of historical background to this whole idea of uh, to go back to what I started with, the idea of annexation. Um, I will go back to the agreement that was made in 1994 with the Palestinians, which divided the West Bank into three areas. And these areas were called Area A, Area B, and Area C. Um, area A is an area of the West Bank where the Palestinians have complete control, which means they have, um, we'll call it police control, and they have administrative control. In other words, they have administrative control and they have physical control over those areas. Those areas in the main are the, the built up urbanized areas of the West Bank, and they include, go back to my map, Here's my map. Mainly the urban areas, the main cities of the Palestinian areas, which are Jenin in the north, Nablus, Kalkilia and Tulkarim on the border with Israel up over here, um, uh, Bethlehem, uh, the main area in, in Hebron, which is the largest city in the West Bank. Uh, excluding some Jewish occupied uh, parts of it, and the city of Jericho and the, and the land all around the city of Jericho. So this would be area A, where Israeli, theoretically, Israeli um, police are not allowed to go into those places. Area B is the area where the Palestinians have civilian control, administrative control, but the Israeli police have military control and they're allowed to go into those areas. So those areas are a much larger geographical area than area A uh, and include big, uh, big pieces. Uh, if you mix area A and area B together, it includes somewhere around 70 or so percent of the West Bank. Area C is the areas where the Israelis are settled, where they have both civilian control and military control. 
And these are the areas which um, Israel proposes to annex in the, uh, in the near future. And um, this would mean roughly 30% of the area of the West Bank, and the Palestinians would be left with 70%. Um, as I said before, though, if you actually looked at a very detailed map, it looks like Swiss cheese because the areas are mixed together. There is a wall or a security barrier, which roughly, roughly goes along the former border of the West Bank, but which goes inside the West Bank to incorporate many Israeli uh, settlements. And in the area, particularly around Jerusalem, the, the wall uh, sort of runs in and out and parallel and up and down, and it's a kind of a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, the most famous part of the wall, which gets on TV all the time, is the one separating the southern suburbs of Jerusalem from Bethlehem. And uh, that's the wall that gets noticed all the time because um, of its proximity to Jerusalem and to Bethlehem. In uh, other areas, the wall is, is, is not there. It's not really finished. It's, it's open land, uh, mostly in uninhabited areas, especially down in the southern part uh, in the Jordan Valley. Um, the idea of the partition of Palestine, and this, we'll, we'll go back to this map over here. This map shows all of Palestine here, if you look at it from top to bottom, Lebanon on the north, the Jordan on the east, you have the ocean Mediterranean Sea on the west, and you have Egypt here, the Sinai Peninsula on the south, uh, the south um, west. Um, the, the idea of dividing this piece of territory between the Arab inhabitants and the Jewish inhabitants is not a new idea. This whole territory here, what we call Palestine today or Israel today, belonged to the Turks for 500 years. From the 1400s to the 1900s, uh, from the 15, early 1500s to the early 1900s for 400 years, uh, the Ottomans ruled this piece of land, never giving it any kind of independent status, but lumping it in with the province of Syria, which would have included Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Israel. And it was only in 1917 when the British took over, did this territory uh, uh, stop being ruled by the Ottomans and passed into the hands of Great Britain. Great Britain was given a mandate by the United Nations, and the United Nations, the, the League of Nations, I'm sorry, after the end of the First World War, gave out lots of mandates. They gave a mandate to South Africa to rule over, um, to rule over uh, what we would call today Namibia. They gave mandates to uh, Great Britain to rule over Palestine, to rule over Iraq. They gave a mandate to France to rule over Syria and to Lebanon. And uh, there were mandates given to rule over German territories in Africa as well. So lots of mandates were handed out. 
by the League of Nations to take territory from the losers, meaning uh, the Ottoman Empire and Germany, and hand it over to the winners, meaning uh, France and Great Britain, among other, uh, among other winners. And uh, so Great Britain was given a mandate, but only for 50 years. So this was not open-ended. They were not handing over Palestine to Great Britain and saying, okay, you're a winner, belongs to you. To the winner goes the spoils. That's not the way it worked. The mandate was to rule the territory for 50 years. Now, specifically on this mandate, the mandate given to Great Britain was to create a Jewish national home in Palestine. Not to make Palestine into a Jewish national home, not to kick out the Arabs who are living here, but to create a Jewish national home in Palestine. There was no um, specific instructions as to what a Jewish national home is, but uh, that was left to Great Britain to figure out. Um, the uh, British then uh, said, okay, that's what we'll do. And uh, they kind of uh, approached it uh, with the cooperation of the Jews who were living in Palestine at the time. Uh, and at the time, the Jewish population of Palestine was somewhere around 10% of the population. So not a lot. The, uh, the Jews who were living in Palestine at the time wanted several things of Great Britain. They wanted to establish uh, a uh, official recognition of the Jewish people and the Hebrew language. And most importantly, they wanted to allow the admission of Jews coming from Europe into Palestine. Those were the two things that they really wanted. Uh, they didn't ask the British for money to establish Jewish businesses. They didn't ask for British money to buy more land uh, or to establish uh, agricultural settlements, kibbutzim, moshavim. All they wanted for the British was to maintain order, to uh, prevent Arab attacks on them, and to allow the kind of emergence of the symbolism of a Jewish of a Jewish national home. And at the beginning, the British said, yes, that sounds okay to us. And so, for example, the postage stamps of Palestine had Hebrew on it. The currency, the coins and the banknotes had Hebrew on it. Uh, all kinds of Jewish institutions, such as the Jewish National Fund, such as a theater, such as a university, such as schools, were all set up to be to, to teach in Hebrew and to sort of build up the, um, the, the, the people so that they could establish their home, a Jewish national home in Palestine. It was in a way the revival of 2000 years of history uh, when the Jews last were dominant in this area before the Romans uh, kicked them out uh, in, in, in 70, 70 uh, AD and later in 135 AD. So it was really the revival of a Jewish national home and the Jews paid very little attention to what the Arabs felt. And the Arabs of course said to, to themselves, well, wait a minute here. We ourselves were dominated by the Turks. 
we want our own independence. Uh, we are 90% of the population. And why should we have to put up with the uh, arrival of Jews from abroad to potentially threaten our self-determination in this area? And so it didn't take long, specifically one year, from 1920 to 1921. The 1920s when the British officially took over by the Treaty of San Remo. 1921, there were already riots in Jerusalem and in Jaffa against a Jewish sort of um, uh, uh, presence in the country. And there never was any official acceptance by the leadership of the Arabs um, of the Jewish presence in this area. Even though on a daily basis, on an economic basis, the Jews and Arabs did work together uh, Arabs were hired in many, many cases to work in Jewish businesses, factories, and on Jewish farms. Um, the Jews kind of set up a, a sort of administration. They said, well, if we are going to be living here, we need a spokesman, we need leadership, we need an organization. And during the mandate period, they did set up the, we'll call it the forerunner of, uh, of an Israeli government. The Arabs didn't do that. The Arabs had no, lead, had no way to organize a kind of a Palestinian leadership because they had never did, done it before. They're, they're, many of their sort of uh, identities were based just on their own uh, villages, on their own families, on their own extended families or clans. Uh, they had religious leadership, uh, but they didn't have a civil leadership. And this what cost them greatly when in 1947, 48, uh, matters came to a head. Matters came to a head a lot before then, specifically in the 1930s. The 1930s was the time when Hitler took over in Germany. Uh, and Jews immediately started leaving Germany and started leaving Austria uh, to, to uh, get out. Some of them who, who wanted to get out came to Palestine. And the more the Jews came to Palestine, the more the Arabs got nervous. And in 1936, uh, a riots broke out, a strike broke out, anti-British riots broke out uh, on behalf of the Arab population. And at this point, uh, British were looking to the possibility of another war in Europe. And they said, if there is another war in Europe, we're going to need the uh, support of the Arab world. We're going to need oil from the Arab uh, areas. And while during the 1920s, the sympathies of the British mandatory regime were with the Jews, by the 1930s, those sympathies passed over to being with the Arabs. And when those Arab um, riots broke out, uh, the British did what they love to do to solve a problem. What is that? It's a royal commission. Uh, you might remember, we, we remember here in Canada that after the 1837 rebellion, the British sent the Durham, Lord Durham to figure out what to do, and he established the Durham Report. Well, in 1937, they sent Lord Peel to Palestine uh, to talk to both parties, and he set about 
he set out a Peel report. And that Peel report, uh, the object of which, uh, the, the, the result of which was to, to suggest a partition of Palestine into a Jewish part and an Arab part. Except that the lines that Mr. Peel suggested gave the Jews only 10% of Palestine because they were 10% of the population. In other words, a small strip along the coastline where Tel Aviv is today, and another strip along the, in the upper Galilee where uh, Jewish settlements were, 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 were quite long established. Uh, but this report uh, never made it to the light of day simply because the Second World War broke out uh, in 1939 and all of these plans were shelved. The Holocaust, of course, happened wiping out six million Jews in Europe, which was uh, a third of the total population of Jews in the whole wide world. And after that war was over, of course, there were some Jewish uh, survivors left hiding, escaping, and these people wanted to get to Palestine as soon as possible. Um, by that time, the United States had changed its position in a way from not caring what happened in the world before the Second World War. Remember, the United States did not enter the Second World War against Germany when Germany attacked Poland, when Germany attacked France, when Germany attacked Great Britain. What did the United States do? Nothing. It was only when Japan attacked them that they entered the war. And had Japan not attacked them, who knows if they would have ever entered the war and it's possible Germany could have even won the war. But uh, in 1945, uh, the United States was the predominant economic power in the world, the predominant military power in the world. They had the atomic bomb and used it. And the United States leaned on uh, the rest of the world to, um, to uh, create a Jewish state in Palestine because Great Britain after the war said, we don't want our mandate anymore. We're too broken. We're, we have to recover from the war. We're giving up all of our colonial territories, including India, including Burma, including um, uh, Palestine, uh, including, uh, where else did I forget, Sri Lanka, Ceylon. Uh, they just said, we don't have the energy to run these places. We're giving the mandate back to the United Nations, the newly created United Nations. And so the newly created United Nations in 1947 went ahead and established another idea to partition Palestine. By this time already, the Jews were not 10% of the population, but they were 33% of the population of all of Palestine because of the influx of Jews both after the uh, mandate was established, and in the period after 1945, 46, 47, uh, when refugees were flocking to Israel, uh, even though Great Britain tried to keep them out, many just snuck in, and um, you know, uh, Britain uh, did not really try very, very hard to keep them out. So uh, that partition of Palestine, uh, the idea was, that the Jews would uh, take the parts that they are thickly settled in and the Arabs would take everything else. The difference between that, that and the first partition was that the Negev Desert, which at that time was pretty well empty, 
of people was given to the Jewish state because of the insistence of the United States. Now in 1947, the Arabs had leadership. By that time, they did have spokesmen. They could have said, okay, we'll take the deal or okay, we'll negotiate. But they said, absolutely not. They said, we are the majority in Palestine and we want all of it. And um, once they said that in November 19, the, the declaration was in November, I think 29th or 30th, the partition plan, uh, pretty well a guerrilla war broke out between then and May 1948 when the British left. Uh, when the British left, there was a short war between Israel and all its neighbors who invaded, who tried to take over and destroy the country. Uh, Egypt invaded, Lebanon invaded, Syria invaded, Jordan invaded, and even Iraq, which doesn't border on Israel, sent troops to Jordan, to, which then went into Palestine. And it was amazing that the Israelis were able to prevail in, the, in that war and ended up taking over territories which were not even allotted to them in the 1947 partition plan. Furthermore, the population of Palestinians which were living in the areas that became the Jewish state uh, left uh, or were kicked out. And um, the new Israeli state, instead of being uh, as pre-partition Palestine was 66% Arab. The, the state of Israel is now 10% Arab. So those people who were living in the big cities like Jaffa uh, or Haifa, uh, many of them, most of them, not many, most left, left thinking that the war would be over and they would come back, but they never came back to this very day. And these people went to refugee camps in Gaza they went to refugee camps in what was the West Bank. They went to refugee camps in Jordan, in Syria, and in Lebanon, uh, where millions are still uh, sitting there today, being supported by the United Nations because, quote, their descendants of refugees is the same thing as being a refugee yourself. And so uh, we come to the next partition plan, the one which we just spoke about today. And you could see that there's a theme to these partition plans. The theme is that the Arabs get less and less and less and less, and the Israeli Jews get more and more and more and more. And this is a result of military, continuous military victories. And you know, there's a saying to the winner goes the spoils. And um, uh, you know, Yasser Arafat once made a speech saying, you know, today, meaning when he made the speech in 2000, I would accept the 1947 partition plan. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> you, you can't go back once you lose a war and say, I wish I never fought the war. So that's the way that goes. Okay, I'm stop now uh, and uh, take some questions and comments because I see and almost an hour has passed and it's passed so quickly. So um, you uh, ask me anything you like. Um, so folks, if you're listening uh, on Zoom or by telephone, the folks on Zoom can press the raise hand button and then we'll unmute your microphone and you can ask your question. Or if you prefer, you can also press Q&A and type in your question uh, manually. 
while we're waiting for that, uh, Hershey, um, yeah. you know, obviously a lot of our listeners have read more than the average person about this topic and they have a particular, they have a particular narrative in their head and they understand Absolutely. it more than others. Um, the average person in the world, of course, doesn't. And so when they see news reports, headlines, uh, in, in the news headlines, like this uh, talk is called, um, they, they don't necessarily have the context and the background to it. So um, what would be the sort of 20-second elevator, I don't want to say a pitch, but the elevator summary that you would give to somebody that could, in a fair way, help them understand uh, the conflict? I would say this is a very difficult conflict to understand. I would say that this conflict has, um, uh, in one sense, the easiest way to, to explain it is you have two different people each claiming the same piece of territory of land each saying that we are the original people who lived on this land, uh, each saying that the other side are the interlopers. The Jews say that they have been living there and lived there continuously and established a culture and a religion uh, for thousands of years before the Romans kicked them out. And so that they were kicked out by the Romans and they came back in the 19th century. The Arab Palestinians would say, no, we've been living here all the time. And you just arrived, the Jews just arrived in the 19th century, sent by the colonialist powers to take away our land from us, uh, taking advantage of a weakened Ottoman Empire. And so each side, you know, and that has a historical narrative in that way. Um, and there's element, there are elements of truth, you know, depending on how you want to look at it in both sides. There is, though, uh, there is a kind of a fundamental difference in the sense that um, the Israelis never said, uh, we want to kick all of the Arabs out of this country. Uh, the Arabs said, we want to kick all the Jews out of this country. Now, obviously, there are differences within each community uh, of what we would call hardliners and moderates. The reason that this conflict is so difficult to solve is because before the conflict could be solved, the hardliners on each side have to be won over by the moderates. And that's a very difficult job to do. And that's why this conflict has persisted for so long. Um, there are other reasons because it's not just a local conflict. Uh, it has, like many conflicts in the world, um, uh, managed to draw in the rest of the world on either side. So at one time when the Cold War was going, the United States was backing Israel and the Soviet Union and its allies were backing the, um, the, the Arab states and the Palestinians. The Arab states themselves, in a way, felt guilty for having lost the 1948 war and could never come to terms with Israel and make peace with Israel because it would be a kind of an admission of guilt on their part for losing the 1948 war. 
And so it doesn't even have just Israeli-Palestinian connections, it's got connections to the rest of the Middle East. Uh, so in a nutshell, that's the reason why this is such a difficult uh, conflict to resolve. Um, the uh, ideal of having a kind of a multinational unified Palestinian state was one which was espoused by some few of the Jewish uh, intellectuals before 1948. Uh, of course, it's what the Palestinians wanted since they were the majority and they could outvote all the Jews. Um, but uh, it's, it's difficult to visualize such an arrangement because the differences between the two peoples are so great. And yet, and yet, today, there are many Palestinians who want to be part of an Israeli state because they say the Palestinians are complete useless um, failures and Israel is a successful, wealthy, established democratic state. And we wouldn't mind taking our part in that state, just as the Israeli Arabs are doing today. Um, the, uh, the essence of the Israeli argument is the ideal for them is they would like to have the land without the people. In other words, they would like to have the West Bank as part of their country, but without all the Arabs in it because those Arabs would always be hostile to them. So you could see it's, it's not a simple, it's not a simple a kind of, a, it's a dilemma which has lasted 70 or more than 70, we'll call it 100 years, you know, from 1920 to 2020. It's the 100th anniversary of the San Remo Treaty this year. Um, so Hershey, we have Howard uh, on the line. Howard, if you can unmute your microphone, you can ask your question to Hershey. Yes, I can't uh, see him, but I can I can hear you. Oh, uh, yes. My question is, um, why is is he and and his wife not in in jail uh, because of all the things they've done? I mean, maybe he has parliamentary immunity, but she doesn't have parliamentary immunity. How come she, at least she's not in jail? You, you, I, the question was about Netanyahu and his wife, is that? Yeah, question? yeah. Oh, why aren't they in jail? Yeah. Well, you know, he's, he does have a trial coming up for three specific uh, charges. Uh, and she has actually been, she has had a trial and lost it. And she was found guilty of using or stealing state money. Uh, and was ordered to pay a fine, which was a very minor fine of 15,000 uh, shekels, which is like uh, $5,000, which is chump change to them. Uh, and uh, she just feels, and he feels at the same time, uh, that all these trials are political. In other words, the reason that the, the, the justices are against him are for political reasons, not for anything that he's done that's wrong. In a certain way, Netanyahu has the same idea about himself as Trump has, which is that whatever I do is legal because I'm the sort of father of the country, I'm looking after the country's best interests, and anybody who's against me is against me because of political reasons, because they oppose my success and they oppose my strength 
and they're just in a sense, um, you know, trying to undermine Israel as a whole and not undermine me. So that's, that's his attitude. But his trial is ongoing. Uh, it's been postponed, delayed, postponed, delayed. Coronavirus just popped up just in time before he was supposed to appear in court. So he's fighting a rear guard action against the justice ministry and against the judges who are supposed to judge him. Uh, so this is an ongoing, uh, an ongoing issue. Uh, remember that in Israel, there is no fear of, of, of putting high people up to char on charges. Uh, one president of Israel is still sitting in jail uh, for sexual uh, improprieties. Uh, Mr. Olmert, who was a prime minister of Israel, was found guilty of bribery, of receiving bribes, and was also sitting in jail. And so um, putting ministers in jail or prime ministers in jail or even the president is, is certainly normal for Israeli um, life and explains why in a list of uh, professions that politicians in Israel are counted, uh, I would say, below garbage men in the way uh, people look at them. So they're, they're not sort of respected the way they are, say, in our country. Howard, do you have any uh, follow-up question? Yeah, um, you said something that until 1917, Israel was part of the Turkish Empire. Ottoman Empire. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Are there Turkey, Tur Turkey didn't exist until 1923. Okay, but are there still Turkish people living in Israel? There never were any. Okay. There never were any. Uh, the Ottoman Empire ruled uh, by using local people as their administrators. And um, they never tried to settle that area with Turkish people. It was uh, at the time uh, Arab people. But interestingly enough, it was not uh, heavily, it was not overwhelmingly Muslim as it is today. In other words, there was a large presence of Christians, Christian Arabs, um, uh, Greek Orthodox uh, uh, Arabs, uh, Catholic Arabs, uh, Armenians, uh, and you know other smaller ethnic groups who lived all over the Turkey, all over the Ottoman Empire, including in Palestine, including a Jewish population which was small, but which had always been living in Palestine from from forever. Uh, you know, who just never left. Um, and then there were all other Jewish communities who came in, in after the Spanish Inquisition and other ones who came in the early 19th century who were uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews from Eastern Europe who came to live in the four holy cities uh, of, 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 of Palestine, um, Tiberias, uh, Hebron, Jerusalem, and what was the fourth one? La, 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 la can't remember. Uh, anyway, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's what, that's, that's who lived there before, before the, you know, the modern, modern Zionism started in the 1880s to bring Jews to live in Palestine, who were not ultra-Orthodox, who were there to work, to live, to start businesses, and to resettle the land. That movement only started in the 1880s. Okay, thank you, Howard. Uh, if anybody has a question on Zoom, you can press the raise hand button and uh, turn on your microphone and you can ask the question. 
Hershey, as we uh, wait for another question, um, obviously uh, Iran is a big factor in the area. And you know right. we, we've heard in the news recently, I think it was the police chief in Dubai, or I forget who it was now, who just made some you know public comment saying something like, uh, well, of course Israel is here to stay and we want to work with Israel, something that would have been, you know, crazy for, for somebody to say, you know, even 10 or 20 years ago, but now right. you're hearing a lot more of this in the Arab world. And I know right. some of this has to do with the Sunni-Shia split, people looking right. for, to, for support for Israel against right. Iran. So I guess the, the question of what happens next really depends on what happens in Iran. So what is your sense of, of, of how the people in Iran are, how do I put this, are, are, are we anywhere close to seeing an overthrow of that regime? Because that would really change the whole region, wouldn't it? Well, yes, that's true. That regime started in 1979 uh, with the uh, expulsion of the Shah uh, after a period of uh, economic downturn, after the Shah reacted to demonstrations with uh, brutal force. Um, and uh, they took over in 1979. And believe it or not, uh, no one would have expected them to last uh, 41 years and they've been in power continuously and unchallenged for 41 years. There have been elections which have been kind of, um, well I won't call them fake, but they were elections where the, uh, the, um, the Islamic regime could pick the candidates. So, you know, not, not much of a real open election. Uh, and at this point, there hasn't been any real inside um, opposition. Uh, there's opposition, but there hasn't been any threat to the regime from the inside. Um, and one of the first things that this regime did was it said, look, we are not only the regime of Iran, but we want to support Shias all around the world. The Shia sect of Islam was always looked down upon. And they took it upon themselves as the only Shia majority country to look after those interests and to spread Iran's interest through those communities to the rest of the Middle East. And because they tried to do that, the Sunni regimes in, in contrast started to stand up to them. And, and in that sense, um, uh, you know, this conflict between the two sides developed. One of the early ideas that the Iran had was to prove their their sort of Muslim credentials was to support the Palestinians in any possible way. So once they moved in that direction, uh, at that point, of course, the opposition to them, the Sunnis, said, "Well, maybe we shouldn't be supporting the Palestinians in that in that in that way, you know, or or we should be, but we should be kind of competing against Iran in the way we support the Palestinians." And um, uh, that's how that developed. It doesn't, it, the, the regime is not as solid as it seems. Uh, mo if the regime is going to be challenged, it's going to be challenged for economic reasons and no other reasons. And uh, the um, boycott of Iran, the isolation of Iran by the US, by the World Banking Institutions, by the World Trade Organization, um, has led to uh, the standard of living in Iran falling drastically. The value of the real, the currency, fell phenomenally. 
And so there is poverty in the country and the COVID crisis has just increased it. So the, the country is really, the regime is really sort of um, on its toes to look for any signs of open dissent or open rebellion. But nothing lasts forever. We know that in history and that regime will not last forever either. Okay, I don't see any other questions. Um, so um, do you have any concluding, uh, concluding thoughts for today? Uh, well, um, I would say that um, the, um, the, uh, uh, the essence of Israel is really, it is a really democratic state. And the divisions within Israel are enormous. Uh, you know, more than 30 political parties ran in the last election. Um, and it really is a democratic country where uh, there is an open press and open communications. And people are allowed to, uh, you know, express their, um, uh, their opinions. And so long as the safety of the state is not threatened, the um, the the democratic tug of war, uh, whether inside of the government or outside of the government, is going to continue. This new Israeli government, uh, you know, I'll speak. I could speak about it again at another time. Uh, they had three elections in less than a year because they just could not establish a strong government, and the government which is exists today is, is also not strong. Uh, I'll just say that the government was established with a rotation agreement where the, um, uh, Mr. Netanyahu agreed to give up power in 18 months uh, to Mr. Gantz, and many political uh, leaders are saying this will never happen. So, you know, we have 18 months to see. It might mean the end of him, of Mr. Netanyahu, or not. More than likely, he'll engineer, he's such a phenomenal politician, uh, he's ahead in the polls now. He will maybe, uh, er, you know, engineer a way to have new elections where he would win them again. So he's like a cat with nine lives. And I think Mr. Trump could learn a lot from Mr. Netanyahu and not vice versa. So uh, thank you for listening. I hope to see you again next week and we'll talk about something completely different. Thank you for joining us on the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. And you can join us tomorrow at 2 p.m. on your phone, where our TV and movie librarian, Stephen Tomlinson, will be speaking about the movie, The Ten Commandments. So I'll see oh, you tomorrow. Wow. I saw it. <laughs> you can call in tomorrow and, and hear a nice talk about that. I was, I was very young when it came out. Yeah, really. That was a great movie. All right, then. Thanks. Have a great Thanks day, everyone. Yeah, okay. have a great bye day. Bye-bye. Thanks bye. a lot.